But today, like I said, we're going to come back to this theme of words that build, where we've really moved into the subject of dealing one another in conflict. If you guys remember, we were looking at Hebrews 3 and this exhortation to exhort one another, which can mean warn or correct one another as long as it is today. And this reality that sometimes it's going to be necessary um, that we're going to have to challenge one another and correct and rebuke. And when that happens, it's almost never pleasant and it's never easy. And, you know, we're, we're kind of a church plant almost at this point, like from where we've been. We're kind of in the last couple of years, you know, we've been rebuilding. And we've been rebuilding out of a tremendous dissolution from conflict. And so as we, as we go forward into a season where it, it's just felt like the Lord over the, this last year has started to bring, you know, some new souls and some, some refreshment to those of us who have been here for a while, it's, I think it's really incumbent upon us and I felt really burdened that we prepare for conflict. Because if you're going to be a close-knit church, if you're going to do what God wants you to do, which is to live with each other in love, to know each other, to really care for each other, you're going to have conflict. A great word I heard, a great saying I heard many months ago is that eventually everyone will be disappointing and everyone will be disappointed. It's just the nature of living with one another. All of us will be disappointing and disappointed if we live long enough with each other. But what fools we are if we aren't preparing like for that reality you know, especially this time around, so to speak. When the Lord planned to bring the flood, and he did bring the flood, he didn't just bring the flood. He prepared a man to be prepared. He prepared Noah with instructions. Here's how I want you to build this ark and to buffet against the waters, and I want you to make sure the pitch is covered with or the, the, the wood is covered with pitch. I remember in Hebrew, in, in class, learning about um, the kafar, which was this this oily, sticky goo that um, nobody knows quite what kind of wood oil it was, um, but it was this idea of kafar was was this sticky goo that would seal the boat so that the water couldn't destroy the boat. It couldn't get in the boat. It wasn't just enough to have the wood. There had to be this pitch that they put around it. And I think that word kafar became eventually related to atonement, the protection that God provides from his own judgment. So we want to protect, you know, our hearts and be prepared for conflict that eventually will come upon every church. Um, and part of that is, is, is knowing how to the best that we can to bring difficult things to each other. So we're not pretending. We're living in a real world with each other, watching each other Sometimes make mistakes, sometimes make big mistakes, and we're, we're equipped to discern how do we talk to each other about that. And that's where we are. We're trying to prepare the ark, so to speak, of our church so that when we run into rougher waters, which will come big and small, I mean, <laughs> they've come this week in many of your lives, big and small, that you're, you're be- hopefully better equipped to handle it. And this is just one aspect of it. I mean, there are books, whole books written about this kind of stuff. But today we're on how do we bring something to one another? That's where we've been, and, and that's where we were last week. And, and at this point, Luke, did you hand them out already? Okay, everybody's got this sheet of we've been looking at over the past few weeks um, before Steve came last week. 
um, you know, and, and you have these 10 questions, like, what do I want out of this situation? We've covered that in past messages. Am I coming with any logs that are stuck in my own eye to deal with? Lord, help me get those out and be ready then to bring what I need to bring to my brother because I can see straight. Am I coming as a fellow sinner, recognizing that I am indebted to God's mercy? Or am I coming as a judge to condemn? Am I coming with sincere questions, number four, or premature conclusions that I've just figured it all out with my great discernment gifts? I just know what's going on. So I'm just going to dump all that on you without really asking. Number five, we looked at last week, do I know that only God can grant repentance? Am I ready to recognize that I have to like, leave this person's response to the Lord and them because I can't make them see what they can't see? And if I don't see that, then I'm going to try to control and demand and force. Number six, am I leaving room for God's justice? How great it is to know that God is not going to sleep on wrongdoing. He will deal with it. Vengeance is his, or if they're his children, discipline is his. He will take care of things, and we don't have to fix it ourselves, and we've got to leave room for him to do that, but he will. Am I putting hope in that? And today we're going to cover the last four that I've got here. <clears throat> and the first one is, is, I mean, all these, I look at these, I'm just like, I look at my life and I'm like, oh, oh, oh. You know, I feel so uh, tail between my legs coming in here, especially having my wife and my kids. Like, I struggle with all these things. Um, so everything I'm saying today, I'm, I really battle with, I really struggle with. And some of you guys have experienced me struggling and not doing this well or as well as I should. So I'm, I'm in there with you, needing to grow and repent in this area. And this one really, number seven, it really grips me. And this one is, if, if I'm coming to bring words of correction or rebuke or a sin issue that I'm seeing in a fellow believer, am I coming with faith for this person? Am I coming with faith for this person? When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he knew he was going to need to address a tremendous amount of sin in the church. From sexual morality to mistreatment of the poor, to drunkenness, to lawsuits, to a spirit of arrogance over each other, to a spirit of judgmentalism and moral superiority over another. It was a mess. It's, it's legendary how messy this church was. But he knew this church was a living church with born-again, regenerate people who through all, for all their messes, they really had Jesus Christ living in them. And he knew that because that was true, Jesus Christ was going to be faithful to this church. And so before any correction, Paul affirms who they are. We've talked about this before, but it bears repeating. Certainly to me, it bears repeating. He says to them before all the volleys of correction, he says, Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end. And he's basically writing a whole letter of correction. And he starts the whole thing off with saying, Jesus Christ will sustain you guiltless to the end in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He does it at the beginning of Corinthians. But listen, he doesn't just do it at the beginning. This is Paul's consistent ways through this letter by, of, of redemptively confronting these people. 
he consistently comes back and addresses them again and again as God's people, capable and called of walking in God's ways because they are filled or they are indwelt. They're not being filled in, the, in a lot of ways, but they're indwelt without a doubt with God's spirit. And so he's saying again and again in different ways, you are God's people. Come on. Because you are God's people, what are you doing? You are God's people. Have you forgotten who you are? You find his, his rebukes are surrounded by passages like this one I'm going to read to you, where he warns and rebukes while infirming incredible things about them, things that are overflowing for them with, with dignity, for them, about them because of Jesus, and hope for them. Incredible, like, gloves off rebuke with incredible hope and dignity poured on them at the same time. Listen, this is what he says in chapter six. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, those are cheats, will inherit the kingdom of God. And no matter where you are in the political spectrum, you have something to watch out for here. Homosexuality is there, and so is greed and swindling. You know, sexual morality is there, and so is reviling, judging and condemning people. And he says, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And then he goes on. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Why? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Do you, do you hear how different this is than simply, stop it. Gross. That's disgusting. That's horrible. You reprobate. Again, he doesn't pull any punches about the heinousness of sin, but he affirms at the same time the glorious reality of who they are as those united with Christ and indwelt by the Spirit of God. And he calls them, because of that, to live up to not some crazy ideal and make themselves something they could never be. He calls them to hope in who they are in Jesus Christ and to live up to that because of who Jesus Christ is in them and can be for them and through them. So he's not only pointing out what's wrong, which he does Honestly and courageously, he instills them. He's seeking to instill them with faith in what Jesus has done for them and who they are and can be in their functioning, who they truly are and can live out as a result. Think about how different this is when you get into a place, when I get into a place where we just cover 
a family member, a kid, a spouse, or maybe in worst case scenarios, a brother or sister in Christ with like a, a shame bath. Like where we just take them whole and parcel and maybe we just do it in our hearts. Like what a liar. What a loser. Oh my gosh. I mean, even if I'm not saying that, that pulls at my heart. Looking at, you know, cycles of dysfunction and cycles of failure. Oh, I've just had it. I told you again and again and again and again, but you never listen. And again, even if we don't say it, that attitude of hopelessness and condemnation about who they are, when it captures our heart, it's going to come out somehow. And it's going to come out in the wrong way, in the wrong direction. So don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying there aren't times for hard words. But when we're dealing with conflicts, especially with one another, inflicting shame, and well, I mean, in, in dealing with whoever it is, the barista or the waitress, I'm the worst person in drive throughs I mean, if I don't get what I want, my dad, you know, <laughs> he taught me to demand the most from my wait staff. And I've embarrassed my family many times, you know, by just getting cynical and writing off business owners and vendors of various kinds. And when, when I inflict shame and condemnation for my own gratification on people, it's never the Lord at work. But especially when we're dealing with one another, to, to, Lord, to ask and plead with the Lord and help us to paint a picture in our correction, in our rebuke, in our confrontation, to be able to paint a picture for them of hope, hope that the Holy Spirit lives in them and that living by him is a realistic future, a realistic future, that we can do this because of Jesus. Like both things, we can do this because of Jesus. And to paint that picture for one another, that's a gift to give to one another when there's real, honest, true rebuke to bring. And, and, and you know, I don't know how it will work out in the various conversations, but, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking maybe it changes a harsh word to an appeal. Like, hey, remember when you came to Christ? Remember how your life changed? I remember what you were like. You were crazy for him. You were loving on your mom. You were coming to prayer meetings. You were full of joy. Do you think that was just you? You knew who he was and you wanted that life he was offering you and you were tasting it. That's still you because he is faithful. He is faithful. So come back to being who you are, a temple of the Holy Spirit. I just, I say these words and I'm looking over conversations and thinking how I could have done it better, how I could have done it better just in the last few weeks. But certainly over the, over the years, you know. And I, I, so do you come with faith for that person? Am I coming with faith for that person? So, number, what is this, number eight? Am I going or am I hardening? Is that the next one on your sheet? Or did I skip one? Yeah. 
That's what you guys have next as number nine? Okay. I want to loop it. I want to go to, am I going or am I hardening? Privately as possible, we'll hit it the end. Am I going or am I hardening? You know, God made you. He knows how you're wired. He's a genius. And that comes out sometimes in some real clear ways. Sometimes it's, it's harder to see because he's seeing stuff we can't see. But every once in a while, well, a lot of times, he'll say something and you're like, oh, of course. How did he know that? One of my favorite... One of my favorite um, examples of that is in Leviticus 19, 17. He's forming the nation of Israel. He's giving them their laws to live together as brothers and sisters, as his children in this Mosaic covenant. And he says this in Leviticus 19, 17. You must not harbor hatred against your brother. Rebuke your neighbor directly, and you will not incur guilt because of him. There's so much wisdom in this. There's so much great psychology. There's so much great insight about the human heart. You must not harbor hatred against your brother. Harbor is a little port off to the side. It's a secret place to dwell quietly and it's safely away from the storms, away from the realities, away from the world. He says, harbor that anger at your peril. No, instead, go directly and rebuke your neighbor. And you will not incur guilt because of him or lest you incur guilt because of him in another passage. This is astounding insight into the human heart. Many times, I feel like most times, we would much rather just stew and privately, secretly nurse our wounds and become bitter when God would call us to go and get it in the open with the person. And, and I'm not, ta- obviously, right, we can't qualify everything. I'm not talking about a crazy basketball coach guy who thro- throws his chairs into the, who's that guy at Bobby Knight, you know, famous rage fest with Bobby Knight. He picks up the chairs in the middle of the game he's so, and he's throwing folding chairs into the middle of the court because he's so angry. We're not talking about it, that. But we're, we're, we're saying there's another danger besides Bobby Knight chair-throwing rage. The Lord says that we can get bitter inside and not deal with it. And he says when that happens, hatred settles in and it takes residence. And we become guilty before the Lord for hating our brother. We incur guilt, the sin of hating people. And that now is an offense that we have before the Lord because we're hating our brother or sister. Relatedly, Paul says in Ephesians 4, 26 and through 27, be angry, okay, be angry, but do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil a foothold. It's very much of the same bandwidth here that he's talking about in Leviticus 19. There are times where we can actually be Reasonably, rationally angry. Somebody punches me in the face. (laughs) That was great. I love that. No, God's not fake and unrealistic. Hey, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. It's the same principle here in Leviticus 19. God is not saying, you know, about letting the sun go down on your anger. Make sure you bring it up before the clock strikes midnight. 
You know, you're watching a beautiful sunset with your wife, and the sun's going down. You're like, oh, here it goes, here it goes. Okay, honey, remember that thing you did to me this afternoon with the car? It was awful. It was awful. You know, he's not talking about that. He's saying when you've been hurt and you're angry, there is a real danger of harboring it and letting it harden and letting it embitter you, letting it settle in. And then you give Satan a spiritual beachhead in your heart. A demonic flag, a demonic flag is wrongly planted in territory that belongs to God. And it stays there and it starts to corrode the beautiful garden God is seeking to make out of your heart starts to dry up and become hard and, and infertile and corrosive. So, you know, sometimes we've talked about this at number one. Sometimes, hopefully many times, we can forbear. We can pray it away. That should be a common experience that we want for ourselves. To be a people, and I've prayed this before, you know, I want to be a pastor of thick skin and a big heart. Lord, just help me be a pastor of a thick skin and big heart. And I'm, I can have a big heart. The thick skin thing is hard for me. Um, but in the, in, the, in the wrong we feel we've incurred or that someone's hurt us, we, we, we prayed through it. And perhaps we've even sought counsel, and I'll speak to this in a second about how to do that in better ways than worse ways. We find that we just can't let it go. We just can't let it go. And in many cases, the only antidote left is to go to the person or else we're going to incur a hatred towards them. You know, one of the greatest examples I've ever seen in this regard, and this is just to cast maybe a vision for what it can look like, was a dear brother. I'm not going to name him because I just don't even know if I'd have permission to do that. He had to move away a while back from our church. Um, he had to move to a different part of the country, just left our church great, great terms, was an amazing brother. I wish he was still here. But this man, he was a leader here, and he was hurt by another man deeply, like deeply wronged, like incredibly wronged by somebody here. It was awful. Like I still hurt for him thinking about how this other person hurt him. And it involved several people uh, who were part of what happened and, and could also and needed to verify the sin so there was this immediate process that involved a group of people who witnessed what had happened. And so we were, we were all involved in it right away. And when this man wrote to the person who heard him, he included all of us. And what stood out to me, he'd also gone privately with him, but sometimes we were privy to the emails. What stood out to me was two things. How honest he was about he, how he had been hurt and how badly it had hurt him. And how boldly he sought to affirm his love for this brother and his desire for their full restoration. I mean, I, I couldn't believe, like I could identify with the anger and the hurt. And I was like, yeah, I could not identify with the ravenous brotherly love and the courage he had to state it. I love you so much. I can't wait till we're over this hill. Let's just get over this so we can, and this guy was full of affection. He was like a man of great affection to everybody. He couldn't live quietly. And so that was part of his temperament, you know. But I, it was just one of the beautiful examples of, of a guy who was honest with the hurt that he'd felt, but was 
just as full of the Spirit for this future grace that would come as they resolved it. And they did. And they did. And he doesn't carry around bitterness. He carries around love. It's a painful memory, but the relationship isn't painful. His thought for the person. He's free. He's free. Right? That's what it is to not be bitter anymore. You get freed. It's a great thing. So, last one I think for today. Is this this last one? Did I? I didn't miss something, did I? What's number seven? I, okay, that's what I did. So I did ju- God's justice in the last message. Um, so, so I think this is the last one. Hallelujah. Okay, but it's long. Dang. Um, so Matthew 18. So this last one is, am I coming as privately as possible? Am I coming as privately as possible. And remember, all, all this is all that we're talking about today is under this big banner. I didn't go over this of Galatians six one. I didn't go over this earlier, but it was part of the last message. That when we go to one another to restore someone, to confront, to help someone out of their sin, we do it with a spirit of what? In a spirit of gentleness, right? So all these ten are supposed to be ways that we can cultivate gentleness and bring things gently. And, and not, for instance, the last one. What does that have to do with bitterness? You know, I gave this example. The guy who was real serious about what hurt him. Well, it, he was gentle in the sense that he was, he was fighting off encroaching bitterness and hatred and hardness. And that's how it relates to gentleness. So we, looked at, we looked at the word gentleness uh, a couple weeks ago, what it means and what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you're always soft. It doesn't mean that you're always, um, you know, bringing things with all kinds of qualifying, nice little statements. You know, Jesus was gentle. But he was tough. It means that you are humble and you're, you're redemptive in your pursuit. It means that you're not using the power that you could, but there's a restraint and there's a self-control about how you approach things. And you're for the other person in what you're doing. This last one, am I coming as privately as possible, is, is a more clear example of gentleness. In Matthew 18, Jesus commands us this way. <clears throat> if your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses doesn't mean they saw what happened. It means that you've brought them in and now they look at your description and that person's description and they're able to bring a judgment and say, this is what we think happened. And of course, in Jesus' hypothetical situation, there was a real sin that really was committed. And so the two or three people, they're able to say, yeah, we believe you. We see, we see the evidence. We, we've heard both of you guys talk and now we're rendering our judgment. We're on the side of the brother who was sinned against In verse 17, he says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Meaning, widen the circle, bring other people in, bring the whole church if necessary. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. There is a lot to unpack here that I won't delve into today. We, if you guys were in the new members class, you got an addendum about this from our constitution. Uh, it was basically just an unpacking of this whole passage. 
And, and I feel convicted that, yeah, we need to do more study on this. Um, you know, one of my big questions, just, just as an aside, is this going to serve you guys? No, I'll, I'll hold it off. I have questions, and you can talk about what are some of my questions. <laughs> All right, but there's a lot to unpack here that I can't delve in today. But suffice to say, this, I want to put a big qualification here. This is not the only way to deal with sinning brothers and sisters. Like, obviously, if your brother sins against you and you can overlook it, and you can forbear, that may be exactly what God wants you to do. But there's other considerations throughout Scripture. We can see that leaders, because of the nature of the standards of leadership, sometimes leaders, there's an appropriateness to a public rebuke, like what Paul did with Peter in Galatians. Or when there's a serious scandal involving a leader, it's not going to help the leader or the church to not bring it out to the open. Um, so there, and you've got to weigh all those things. You know, one man's scandal is another man's discretionary. That wasn't, you know, so these things have to be weighed. But, but when it's a case of things like a child being hurt by an adult, or when we're dealing with sins of spousal or child abuse or any kind of abuses which are potentially criminal in nature, embezzlement, when, when we're going one-on-one or we're, we're going one-on-one to the person we just recognize it might trap us in a kind of dangerous situation. Going to the authorities or others right away might be exactly what we need to do to protect the vulnerable. And sometimes there are biblical counseling situations where matters and issues, you know, think about couples, where the issues have been laid out on the table willingly by all parties. And so the information is confidentially kept, but many people are talking at once. So there, there are lots of qualifications. We could do several messages on qualifications to this and other examples in Scripture of how this is to look. But I just want to say we have to be careful, like not to qualify this to death to the point where we excuse ourselves from the hard and good work that Jesus wants to work in us. So yes, absolutely there are qualifications. Can't talk about them all, but we gotta be careful because Jesus said these words for a reason. In many conflicts between brothers and sisters where we hurt one another, the first step that Jesus commands here, when it is appropriate, it's dramatically different than what we often wanna do in our flesh. When I'm hurt by somebody badly, my old nature wants to talk about the person, not to the person. When I'm hurt by somebody badly, my old nature, I mean, apart from the appropriateness where it might be important to talk, I want to talk about the person, not to the person. I want to go to those that I feel safe with those who love me and sympathize with me, and I want to tell them what this or that person did to me or said to me, and how could they, and won't you be angry for me and take offense with me? I want to do everything but go to the person in private, just between me and them, especially because I'm hurt, and especially because I don't trust the person. I want to go to others about them and not go to them. And some of that's reasonable and rational. Sometimes you just... (laughs) There are matters of safety or what just happened or was this right or was this wrong? So we, we, we have to use discernment. We be, be careful here, but look at where Jesus says to start. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Why does Jesus command this? And, and I think the why will help us understand when this is what we should do and when maybe we shouldn't do this. 
First, Jesus knows that our desire to talk about others and not to them is very often fueled by desire to punish them and not to redeem them. We want others to take our offense and to be hurt for us. And we want to build a community of condemnation against and judgment against the person which makes us feel protected and vindicated rather than commit to a difficult rescue operation, which is actually what Jesus is calling us to in Matthew 18, a rescue operation, even to the point where the rescue might fail so that the whole church has to know about it and the whole church has to excommunicate this person because they won't repent. But, but from beginning to end, it is a rescue operation. If you read Matthew 18, and if you read this passage, 18 to 20, or 15 to 20, read in the context of the whole chapter of Matthew 18. It's all about rescue. It's all about rescuing a sinner, even if you have to publicly bring it all out in the open and kick him out of your church. It's about rescue. So Jesus knows that <laughs> we're, we're often much more interested in judgment than we are in rescue. And part of that is to tell other people and get them mad with us. Can you believe it? Jesus also knows that our old demonic sinful nature, we just love to hear. We love to share in our demonic old nature that we aren't anymore but still clings on to us. Mankind loves to hear and project negative information and feast off the failure of other people. It gives us a buzz. We feel safer We just enjoy it. And why do we enjoy it? Because we're evil in that regard. I mean, by God's grace, we are not evil, but our old man is evil and he's still grabbing at us. She's still grabbing us to be the old person. But pull up Fox News. Pull up CNN. Pull up Drudge. Pull up Rachel Maddow. Pull up some old Rush Limbaugh program. I don't know who the successor to Rush is. Carl Tucker, I don't know. But pull it up. And you will immediately see that what stimulates, what sells, what builds up advertising base, what gets ratings, it's never, ever, ever the best things that they can say about people. Never. Liberal, conservative, it doesn't matter. It's never the best things. It's the worst things. It's the scariest things. It's the scandalous things. It's the, oh, look at them things. It's the pointing finger things. God hates our love for that. He doesn't care what spectrum it comes from. He hates it. It's one of the things he sends people to hell for. If we have to say hard, awful things about people, he doesn't want us to love it. He wants it to do it because we've got to. Sometimes we will have to. But if we love it, if we treat it like a Marvel movie, it's entertainment to us. It's the death of our souls. And it's part of why our whole nation is, you know, dying spiritually. Because we've all fed into this. Finally, Jesus knows that whatever offense might have hurt us, If we talk about that when we don't need to and we vent to others in a spirit of hurt when we don't need to, we have almost assuredly made reconciliation much more complicated. There are more people to confess to. There are more people to know. So Jesus says, if you want to do this right and gently, 
If you can, start by going to the offended brother or sister privately because this is what gentleness looks like. This is the kind of gentleness that we started out with last week, the kind that honors the heart of our gentle Lord who seeks to inflict the least pain necessary to get people to repent. The kind of gentleness that positions the Holy Spirit to do a work that harshness gossip it won't do. So, again, I know there are times where we don't know what to do. And I think there are times where honestly seeking counsel is the right thing to do and can be honored by the Lord, especially if we seek counsel without naming the other person. Or we might seek counsel from someone as far removed from the situation as possible. Or perhaps, this is a great deal, sometimes there's, there's someone we can seek wisdom from who doesn't know the person who's offended us. Or perhaps you and the person can agree that there's a third person, a third party that can help you both. You say, hey, I'm struggling with this. Can we invite this person in? And, and I don't know how to see this. Maybe you don't know how to see it, but can we invite? We both trust, blah, blah, blah. And if you're both okay with that, then I think you can move ahead with that. But again, we have to be careful that the simple command of the Lord in a case where it's doable is not being rationalized away because Jesus gives us this very intentional progression on purpose. Start as small as you can and move outward from there. Start as small as you can and move outward from there. He knows this will help you gain your brother and not hurt you both more. See, gaining your brother is the goal. Or your sister. Gaining, this is a generic, like mankind. Gaining your brother or sister means much more than just settling scores, certainly. But it even means much more than just figuring out who was right and who was wrong and delivering the appropriate apologies. Gaining your brother, that word, is a family word. It means you can function as family again. It means affection and compassion and dependability and unity are freely allowed to follow between sisters and brothers and sisters and sisters and brothers and brothers. It means that you and your brother or sister can live out the image of God. Again, a less cluttered, image-bearing life together, which is the goal of our lives, to image God. What is the image of God? It's, at least it's the image of the relational harmony and love and goodwill and peace between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so gaining your brother means you can reflect the image of God. Gaining your sister means that no matter how, how deep your relationship might be, it's not encumbered now by bitterness and hatred and offense. 